0: So, it's the first Thursday of March, which means it's Q&A night. I don't prepare a Dharma talk on the first night of the month, first Thursday of the month. Instead, we all create the Dharma talk together by uh, you're asking questions or framing contemplations. And just as a reminder um, to make the atmosphere... Um, comfortable for everyone, or safe for everyone. I'd prefer that we don't have a lot of crosstalk, so if you think you have a response to someone else's comment, you could catch them afterwards, or um, you know, framing your own words in some way in part of what you are asking. But um, that's just a courtesy that keeps a little bit more formal atmosphere. So what's on your mind regarding the Dharma? Your practice or anything else.
1: One thing I've noticed is when listening to Dharma talks on Dharma Uh Seed, some of the teachers
2: I have, I agree with them more, and I find that I can um, agree more with what they're saying. But some of them seem like great teachers, and I think people really like them, but at the same time, they say some things that I disagree with or uh, like, almost like a really deep level,
0: can't really. It doesn't resonate for you, yeah. No. Yeah, so um, do you have a question there? or? Well, should
2: I keep listening to him or should I just turn him out and go for the ones I like?
0: Oh, okay. Um, this is an important point because. Uh, Do other people have this experience? Some dharma teachers you resonate more with than others? Yeah, I see some nods. It's the same for me, actually. And so, at a fundamental level, yes, there are people that we connect with better than others. It's no different than people in other walks, other areas of our life. Sometimes there's a connection and sometimes not. So it's actually, I think, fine to emphasize or stay more with the teachers that you feel are speaking to you at this time. But I'll add two caveats um, to that. One is that be prepared that this might change over time, um, because, you know, as the path unfolds and as we have a different understanding ourselves, we start to feel like a different teacher is speaking to us at some point. And it's not that that first one failed you or was never right or something. Um, It's just something in you has shifted. And so be open to finding other teachers. Especially in our tradition, we don't emphasize um, guru worship or other things. And so it's fine to change around and understand that maybe that one that you didn't like this month, um, a year from now, might really speak to you. So be aware of that. And then the second caveat is um, to be a little bit careful with the words agree and disagree, um, which is what you use. And I understand that feeling, you know, there can be a sense of somebody says something and we almost feel like, that's not right, or I wouldn't say it that way, it doesn't match my experience. Um, That's actually an interesting point. You know, that, that moment is an interesting moment where we think, I don't agree with that, or I do agree with that. Because that's actually the mind um, producing some preference, basically, and so that in itself is a process that we can watch. And it may be that something that we don't disa- that we disagree with, or that's what we first think, is actually something that we don't understand very well, or something that feels contradictory to us is because we didn't we haven't seen the bigger picture yet, and so it might be that what they're saying. Uh, will resonate for us or make more sense at some time later when our understanding has changed. So it's also helpful to be open to um, what we might learn from teachers that are saying things that don't immediately sound like they match our experience. Does that help? Yeah. Thanks. Good question.
1: Yeah. Kind of in a similar vein, uh, a few years ago I used to read a lot of Dharma books. Mm -hmm. But in the last year or so it's like I'm not reading much of anything in the way of books, but Mm -hmm. they're not appealing to me. I don't know how important that is in continuing Mm
0: -hmm. my path. Yeah. Do you have some kind of an aversive feeling about Dharma books or they're just not that interesting to you right now? Or something else?
1: Uh, it's not clear right
0: now. Okay, it's not clear, yeah, but you're not doing it. That's, you've noticed that. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, I don't think there's anything that's absolutely required that we do all the time. Um so I think I'll, I'll give a somewhat similar answer, which is that our, our practice, of course, you've practiced for a little while, so you know that practice goes through phases, and you know this might be a non-reading phase for you. I can say from my own experience that when I first started practicing, I um, immediately felt like, uh, if I think about this too much, I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> it's like I just had this, I don't know, that wasn't very well articulated to myself even, but I just felt like, Um, I don't want to get too heady about this. I really want to practice. I want to feel it in my body. That's what intuitively made sense. So I actually didn't read very much at all at first. I read Dharma books, but I didn't read about um, any academic things, about the history or the different types of Buddhism or the theories. I did read the suttas, but I read them from a very practical, experiential point of view. And that actually felt good to actually sort of almost cut out my intellect as as a part of the practice. And then there came a point where it had to come back, you know, because in the end uh, we have to include all of ourselves in this practice, and I'm a somewhat intellectual person, uh, just as my kind of mental makeup, that's what I got. And so there came a point where I started saying, Buddhist studies, oh that's interesting, I want to... You know, I I looked up some scholarly papers about that, and I learned some of the history, and that turned out to be enriching at the time when it felt natural. But if I had said, oh, I should know this, or I should understand that, um, I don't know, it would have been that useful. So I I feel like the way you framed it, the way you asked the question, sounds to me like it's just a natural thing in your practice. Um, But then just to add one caveat is there can be times where we resist some part of the practice um, because we're clinging to something or because we've run into a wall somewhere. Um, you know, sometimes we realize that um, we don't want to go to the Dharma Center. You know, and it's, it's, we could say, oh, well, I guess I'm at a phase where I don't need Sangha right now. Or it could be that um, we have some aversion coming up or some clinging around being with people or something and it's actually something we need to look at there. So it can be good to take a little bit, you say you just don't know, it's not clear, so you sort of experiment a little bit, why is this, what is that resistance? Because we are asked to turn toward the parts of our mind that are sticking a little bit. Uh, That's that's the practice, (laughs) we turn toward the areas where we're sticking. So it's worth exploring that, but there's absolutely nothing that you need to force yourself to do on this path, probably, if it's a forcing kind of thing. Yes?
1: I suppose just to <laughs> chime in, not answering their question, but just to speak to it, that it resonated with me, and that I find as I, I think as I become more sensitive, it bec- there are periods where it becomes more and more difficult to justify staring at words, mm-hmm. printed words, mm-hmm. over
0: just sitting practice or looking into nature or something. Yeah. Um. That's a great way to say it, and that... Um, Remember that these texts weren't even written down until 250 years after the Buddha died, so I guarantee you his disciples were not reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they probably couldn't read anyway, some of them. Some could. So, yeah, the reading is a different channel. Now, of course, we have that option now, so it's nice to use it when it's resonating for us. Um, but, yeah, it's, in the end, it's going to be an experiential practice, a phenomenological practice. Yeah.
2: I wanted to know if you know what each color of the Buddhist flags, I know they each represent a different element, Uh a different truth, I think,
0: of some sort.
2: I'm just wondering if you know them, if you can explain explain them.
0: Oh, yeah. So, do you guys know there's a Buddhist flag? Yeah, there is. It's um, it's like orange and yellow, and it's got very blue. It has some yeah, it's usually like a string it's
2: it's a sp- like blue, red, blue, yellow, orange. I think orange.
0: yeah, something like that, and maybe white. I don't know. So, yeah, um, what's the history of it? It's an interesting question, and I'm caught off guard. I don't actually know the history of it. I've seen the Buddhist flag. I know it's used. Um, now that we're starting to have more international Buddhist meetings where people from different strands of Buddhism come, the Tibetan and the Zen and the Southeast Asian and so forth, um, there became a need to have something like this. And they are representative, like many flags. But um, I'd have to look it up.
2: Yeah, it's really cool because I remember learning about it once before, but they each symbolize a core element of Buddhism. Yeah. Like true the four noble truths,
0: maybe. And one of them
2: is like, or something. Uh-huh. I
0: forget exactly what. Wikipedia, yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. Thank you for bringing that up because some people didn't know about that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it just occurred to me to ask this, but uh, all, almost all my meditation has been kind of eyes closed, inward exploration and um, I'm curious in insight or other practices, if there is a meditation on an object, for instance, a a plant or a flower, Uh you know... Do you ever look at something? A practice of spending 40 minutes or an hour really contemplating the the nature of something, not trying to analyze it, but just really taking it in. I've, I've never come across a, a formal practice that uh, encourages that or uh, supports that.
0: Yeah, so you're referring to the fact that in our practice we mostly keep the eyes closed to minimize stimulation, but there is actually, um, there are actually practices like that. There's a um, There are concentration practices, and there are objects called uh, casinas, which are... Uh, they're not plants, but they are They're like little discs. Um, and I think they're maybe the size of a kind of a medium-sized dinner plate, something like that. And there are uh, various casino colors that you meditate on, white, blue, red, black, I forget all of them. And then also elements like um, there's an earth casino and a water casino and air and fire. And the um, the aim is to use the external object. This is Formal concentration practice, as described in a uh, text that's a little bit later than the tr- the most early texts, but it's still considered pretty acceptable for uh, for the, the Theravada tradition. And it um, the aim is that you use the external object to really stabilize the mind, fill the whole mind with blue if you're doing blue kasina, and then at some point you don't need the external object and you can entirely see the reflection in your own mind. But it's basically a, a tool to get into jhana which are very deep uh, states of absorption of the mind. Mm -hmm. But otherwise we we keep the eyes closed and, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah?
2: Um, How do you think someone could use this type of meditation to heal, uh, like, past wounds or things that come up in the mind, because I know we want to try to clear the mind, but sometimes I don't think that it deals necessarily with the issue, Mm -hmm. if it keeps coming up.
0: Yeah.
2: So is there a way that if something does come up, whether you're in your seated meditation practice or not, how we can um, utilize something in Buddhism to kind of remove?
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is an important point because you'll, you've pinpointed exactly what happens in practice is that when the mind gets calm and quiet and you start settling down, all stuff in the heart that's unprocessed starts bubbling up and that often includes past experiences that we didn't complete or that were difficult for us and we couldn't take in completely at the time. And so there's actually quite a few practices for dealing with these in our tradition, um, what we would normally do is feel it in the body, and so, and if there's a persistent, um, you know, memory of something in particular, making sure that we're connected into the body while we're seeing that, if it's an image from our childhood or something, and that actually allows the energy associated with it to get unblocked in the body and to move. The word emotion, e actually means outward mm-hmm. and. Motion is motion. They're meant to move through. And so um, learning to have a stable enough attention that we can feel completely what happened to us at that time, um, even including images, if they're there, is what heals them. um, Because they really want to be seen. You know, they're there because they didn't get seen completely because they were, we couldn't take them in, in our earlier state. We couldn't Yeah, we couldn't be there, couldn't be fully present for them. So my experience is that when something like that happens, the, the most direct way of healing it is by feeling it in the body and letting that move. That may not immediately be possible because sometimes things are too strong, even now in our adult form, they're coming. So there are secondary practices that will help us gain the strength to be able to process them that way. And so those would include things like forgiveness practices, Meta and compassion practices that help stabilize and open the heart, and make in a way make those experiences feel safe to be in our presence. Because sometimes those very difficult earlier experiences are, if I can personify them, they're a little shy about coming forward because you know they've been pushed down; they couldn't be processed before. So we want to find ways to encourage them to express themselves and know that they're okay. So these are the hard practices that establish safety in our own mind. Does that help? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So my primary experience with meditation has typically been movement meditation, Mm -hmm. um, not so much of a seated meditation. And so I found tonight it was very easy to sit and um, be with this for a while, but when I try to practice it on my own at home, um, it seems very short-lived. And so I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations for when the mind is very active, how to Mm -hmm. sort of calm it down like accounting or or something else that can kind of help still the mind so you can kind of get to the deeper layers of things?
0: Yeah, this is an important question and it's one that's been asked for a long time Mm -hmm. because the mind just gets agitated Mm -hmm. so easily. I think it might be worse for us in our modern life since we have so much stimulation and screens and other things. So um, first of all, sitting with a group helps, come to the group, <laughs> but <laughs> as far as calming the mind in the moment um, when you're on your own, um, one technique is to emphasize the out-breath if, if you're doing breath meditation because the in-breath is energizing and the out-breath is relaxing. So it's not like you you know ignore the in-breath and try to force your air out, but Just put more attention onto the out-breath. Also, it's helpful to find places in the body that feel Mm -hmm. um, like they have too much energy. Often they could be tight or they could be vibrating. And there's two options. Either actually look at those places and try to, you know, with the mind, uh, ease them, like breathe through, for Mm -hmm. instance, places that feel Mm agitating. If that's um, possible, but sometimes doing that agitates it more because we're putting attention on it. So if that's happening, then find a place in the body that's relatively calm and quiet. Usually there's something, you know, your heart may be agitated, but what about your hands or, you know, your thigh, something like that? And then just put the attention there and use that as a stabilizing thing. I'm emphasizing the breath. I know not everyone does breath meditation or body meditation, but It's actually said in the early texts that the best um, antidote to a thinking, agitated mind is breath meditation. That's the most calming thing, yeah.
2: And so do you mean just feeling the sensation on the exhale? Is that what you meant by focusing on the exhale? Yeah,
0: putting more attention on that. So you are inhaling and there's some attention there, but maybe have a diffuse attention during the inhale and then on the exhale really feel into that relaxation that Mm -hmm. the body goes through and when it just naturally when it exhales. So those are kind of physical methods. And then um, there are also mental methods. So um, counting is one. It gives the mind a skillful thing to think about instead of everything else that it's thinking about. Uh, You can also do... um, contemplate the disadvantages of being distracted, believe it or not. If you're going to be thinking, you might as well think about the fact that Uh, this is not helping your practice, really. You know, it's going to be, you've got to be in the moment. Even when you do movement meditation, if your mind is wandering off, you misstep or you constrain something, so you know um, that that's there. And sometimes the mind just needs a little reminder of that. Basically, you're trying to find something to do with that energy. It's also possible to um, note what's called noting, note your experience. And that means actually giving a word to what's happening in your experience. So... On the in-breath, you can feel um, stretching, um, coolness, something like that. And then maybe there's a, th- a thought flicks through. So you say thinking, and then sadness, and then um, relaxation. So just, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about, did I get exactly the right word? What was that? Um, some people like the note in practice, because it gives the mind, again, a skillful way to be thinking. Okay. Yeah, so that's a bunch of options. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you for mentioning counting. I, I tend <laughs> to forget about that, Yeah. But it's, it's really effective, especially when my mind is all over the place. Yeah. Do you ever talk about um, working with, I believe it's called the nada sound, the sound inside your head? Oh, yeah. I haven't mm-hmm. talked about that. Um, do you want me to? Yeah.
2: Because <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I enjoy Can you hear it? it? Yeah. To, to, yeah. To use it.
0: Yeah. There's um, that's an interesting history. It was first mentioned by some monk in Thailand long ago and was written down in some, I mean not that long ago, maybe a couple centuries, something like that, and was written down in some um, essay that he wrote or something that got published. And Eventually um, Ajahn Sumedho, who was practicing in Thailand at the time, he had independently discovered it in his own mind and found it to be a useful object. I'll describe it in a moment. And then he um, ran across this text later and felt like, ah, confirmation, somebody else has done this. So what the, this word nada, N-A-D-A, refers to is if the mind is somewhat quiet um, and there aren't too many thoughts, there is actually a sort of a hum or a buzz or just a background sound in the mind. It's not the same as the blood in the ears. That's a different thing. But there is, I'm not sure what it is, it might be you know, background brain activity, basically. Um, but, I, you know, I'm not saying what it is scientifically. But many people can hear it. And it sounds a little bit like if you have tinnitus, actually. Probably if you have that, you wouldn't hear it as easily. But it can be an object of meditation, actually. And it's, it's not quite constant. It has a very, at least in my experience, it has a little waver to it, which is good. Um, makes it easier to focus on moving objects. And you can just sit and rest in that inner sound. And what's nice about it is that it is a very inner experience, and, so, and it's also a sound, so you don't hear. You're not hearing anything externally anymore. And it's a quick way to really come inside. Um, it is mental, and so you're not in contact so much with the body while experiencing that. So it's a different, it's a different experience than body-based meditation. But um, the monks at Abhayagiri and Amaravati, which are the western Thai forest uh, monasteries, often talk about this. And I think they use it there more frequently. It's a good object for concentration. What else is
1: on your mind? Um, it's, I found it wonderful to be able to forgive myself, to mm. that But sometimes I wonder if there's a fine line in there somewhere of forgiving oneself too easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just a
2: thought that's come along it's not something I've really experienced uh-huh. it's just like okay. am I letting myself get
1: away with too much or something
0: I just don't know uh-huh. how yeah. Even, uh, yeah so I guess um, immediately leaping to forgiveness as soon as you notice something that didn't feel quite right I guess could be something like a spiritual bypass of sorts um some kind of a, yeah, of a not quite recognizing the experience. There is some, um, so you've recognized it enough um, that, and I know you haven't explored this, I'm just using you, um, you recognize it enough to see that there was something that doesn't feel quite right, aligned with the heart. And I guess that that moment is actually an uncomfortable moment when we realize, uh, you know, I didn't quite behave the way you know, up to my expectations or the way I think I would have liked to in that situation. And that's actually an unpleasant experience. It has feeling tone unpleasant associated with it. And this, um, that moment of feeling a little bit of shame, if you will, is actually considered a wholesome moment in the practice. That's um, called a guardian of the world, hearing, when we feel um, uncomfortable about something that we've done that wasn't in alignment with the precepts. And then it has a counterpart called otapa, which is um, sort of concern that we might do something in the future <laughs> or concern that we might, you know, like at those moments when we go into a situation and think, okay, this is going to be a tough conversation. I really want to keep, you know, wise speech in mind, something like that. Mm-hmm. That feeling is otapa. And hiri and otapa are called the guardians of the world, the um, feelings that help us to... Um, behave respectfully toward ourselves and others, to live up to our own standards, basically. But they do have unpleasant feeling tone. So it's interesting, right? Often people think, oh, wholesome mind states are all pleasant, like joy and generosity and concentration. And many of them are pleasant. But these two are wholesome mind states that are unpleasant. And if the mind doesn't really want to feel something that's unpleasant, we might leap to forgiveness and just say, oops, that didn't work well, I forgive myself. I'm just making up this scenario. I'm not saying that's what's going on in your mind, but this might be something to be aware of since you've brought up the point. So I would say that it would be helpful to have a moment of mindfulness and really feeling, I sound like a broken record on this, but really feeling in the body, what does it feel like that I did something or said something that didn't feel quite right? And then just check out in the body, okay... Um, how is that? And then if there's a sense of this sense of regret, you know, then we make the wholesome wish. May I be more mindful in the future? I forgive myself for that one. May I be more mindful in the future? Uh, set Reset the intention and start over. Um, we don't have in this tradition the sense of confession. You, know, you don't need to say Hail Marys or so forth, although it is helpful sometimes to go tell a Dharma friend if you've Done something in particular, talk through it with someone. That is considered healing, um, but it's not exactly uh, absolution in the sense that we may have brought up, been brought up with in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So yeah, I think with forgiveness, um, forgiveness that arises naturally as a movement of the heart out of that feeling of disappointment with ourselves, we didn't live up to our own standards. Uh, that's wholesome. But leaping to it without having that feeling might be a bypass. Yeah. yeah, I
2: think part of it is also sometimes if another person was harmed, apology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apology
0: and then resolution mm-hmm. not to repeat the unskillfulness. Yeah. That's very helpful with other people. I think other a lot are... probably air a lot more in... Being very slow to forgive ourselves or being very harsh on ourselves. Yeah, that's right. That's why it's interesting that you brought up the opposite, but there can be cases. But yes, most of us are overly self-judgmental. Right, maybe that's all that's on your mind for now. Last
1: chance. <laughs> uh. Did all that work till I go over, mind. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.